everyone. Welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. What's going on in health and wellness this week? We've got the latest info and tips to help you take care of your body, your brain, and your well-being. It seems like superheroes are a pretty big thing in our culture these days. The idea of someone with extraordinary powers helping humanity is all around us, from comic books to TV and movie screens. Here at WebMD, 2019 marks our 11th year recognizing real people who are making a tremendous difference in the lives of others. We call them health heroes. They are extraordinary people who work to improve health and wellness for everyone. This year's winners all have something in common. They've all made a major impact in the field of cancer, in research, advocacy, patient care, and more. Some of the winners are names you may know. Singer-songwriter Rufus Wainwright, who was honored for his work with the foundation, named for his mother, that funds sarcoma research. And actor Kathy Bates, who raises awareness about lymphedema, a painful complication of cancer treatment. Our winners also include Nobel Prize-winning scientist James Allison, who worked to uncover the immune system's role in cancer, leading to the development of immunotherapy, and Dr. Karen Winkfield, who advocates for diversity and patient-centered care to make sure that cancer breakthroughs reach everyone. WebMD honored them and other winners this week at an award ceremony. They each had inspiring messages about why they do what they do. Yes, I want a cure for cancer. But I also want to celebrate both those in the midst of, of the battle and those who have fallen for the vast wealth they give to others not physically embroiled in this terrible illness. The celebration of everything is what keeps me wanting to fight. By sharing our stories and advocating for each other and raising awareness, then we're all making a difference. For me, I'm, I'm, as I said, I'm not a doctor. I'm kind of like a Johnny Appleseed, you know? And I feel that by telling stories, we create empathy. And empathy is that seed. And from that seed grows compassion. And that is the most valuable thing I think we can teach one another, not only within the cancer community, but with every individual that crosses our paths. As a basic scientist, uh, I've been blessed to see my research findings translate into a powerful new strategy for cancer therapy. Uh, for example, in 2006, I met a 24-year-old melanoma patient named Sharon, a newlywed and recent college graduate. More than a year earlier, her doctors had told her that she had sta stage four melanoma and only a few months left to live. She had received multiple prior therapies, but her cancers continued to grow. By the way, she had brain mets, lung mets, and liver mets, and was in quite bad shape until she just had a little time left. As a last resort, she joined a clinical trial of, of drug uh, ipilimumab that we've been developing. Within three months, her tumors just shrank and then disappeared. A year later, when she was told that she didn't have, she was completely tumor-free, she hugged me and cried, and, and it was just so uh, elated. And I met her that day and couldn't help but just cry with her. Over the past two decades, we really have made tremendous progress and are, in fact, curing cancers that before we would think uncurable. However, as you've heard, not everyone has benefited equally from those advances. My work aims to understand and address the barriers along the cancer continuum, from prevention 
through survivorship that contribute to these disparate outcomes. The work is time-consuming and labor-intensive, and I was warned early in my career when I started Harvard that my focus and my desire to focus on health disparities would impede and restrict my academic promotion, and it has. So it is an absolute thrill to have my advocacy work recognized and celebrated. Those were just some of the winners of WebMD's Health Hero Awards this year. If you want to see all the honorees and learn more about the incredible work they do, you can check out the Health Heroes page on our site. We'll put a link in our show notes. Are you thinking about taking an at-home DNA test to try to get health information or learn more about your ancestry? There are dozens of these tests where you mail in a sample of your saliva or a swab of your cheek. But you should know a few things before you get started. First, these tests don't predict the chances that you'll get specific diseases, like Alzheimer's or cancer. They look for information in your genes that shows you might be more likely to get a certain condition. But the results can't tell you if you'll end up getting that disease. Other things like your lifestyle or habits also affect your risk. Secondly, mail-in tests don't cover all conditions. The field of genetics is growing quickly, but only so many tests are available. So while you may get information about some conditions, you might not get any about a less common disease you're concerned about. Also, if you're looking to map out your family tree, the info might be thinner for some areas of the world. Your results are only as strong as the company's database of samples, and some parts of the globe might not be as well represented. Keep this in mind, too. Your results might be different than those of your brother or sister. Everyone gets 50% of their DNA from each parent, but what's in each half can be different. Just as siblings don't always look alike, their DNA might not be the same either. And if you want a mail-in DNA test to help you improve your nutrition, not so fast. Some testing companies offer personalized advice on dietary supplements based on your test results. Some even try to sell them to you but no studies show that genetic tests can give you useful information about this. There's also no strong proof that genetic tests can tell how your body handles toxins in the environment. Here's a heads up about insurance, too. Laws protect you from being denied health insurance or charged more for it based on genetic testing results, but those laws don't apply to life insurance, disability insurance, or long-term care insurance. It's possible that the companies that sell these types of insurance could use your genetic test results. You should know this, too. Most of mail-in DNA tests are made privately and can be sold to you without proof that they work as advertised. That may soon change, though. The FDA is coming up with guidelines for genetic tests. So do your homework. No testing company can guarantee that the information it gives you is 100% accurate. But some are better than others. Look for tests that meet the U.S. standards called Clinical Laboratory Improvement Amendments and are FDA-approved. Also, be sure you read the fine print. Most companies try to keep personal data private, but that can mean different things. Make sure you understand what data they collect and who can see it. Lastly, you might want to talk to a genetic counselor before you buy a kit. Sometimes genetic tests reveal unwelcome surprises, like the risk of a certain condition. A genetic counselor can help you decide whether to get tested and what the results mean. January is a tough time for skin. It's cold, it's dry, and you can feel and see it in your complexion. But WebMD blogger and dermatologist Dr. Laurel Garrity says it's also a good time to think about hitting the refresh button on your skincare routine. 
She's joining us today from Medford, Oregon, to tell us how to recognize that you've fallen into a skincare rut and how to get out of it with better looking skin. Hi, Dr. Garrity. Hi, how are you? I'm doing just fine. To start off, I think it's really easy to stick with the same skincare products and habits for years and years on end. I certainly know a lot of people who do that. How often do you think people should be reassessing what their skin really needs? That's a very individualized question because there are some of us who have used the same skincare products for years. We get very attached to our current regimen and it works for us. And if that applies to a person, that's okay. You know, everybody's often on a hunt for the new latest and greatest serum or skincare product or skincare treatment. And not everybody may need that. So people whose skin feels good to them, they're not having any major issues. And if they've used their same tried and true products for years, there's no problem in continuing that. But the trouble is some of us run into problems, especially this time of year where our skin might change or our skin might evolve through time or with the seasons. So sometimes it is a good moment to reassess our skin and how it's feeling and how it's looking and make sure that we're doing the best thing for it and not just relying on the same products that we've always used out of habit. So it's good to pay attention to our skin and just look for signs that it may be requesting something a little different or maybe evolving in a way that it needs some different care. So in January, one of the most common skin changes that dermatologists see is increased skin dryness and rash. And as you alluded to, Carrie, a lot of that is environmental because the temperatures are chillier outside, the air humidity tends to drop quite a bit, and that can leave our skin very dry and our skin barrier actually gets disrupted. Inside, meanwhile, we've got the the fires going, the heaters going, and that can be drying as well. So it's that combination of two extremes that our, our skin is exposed to can leave us quite dry. And then you throw in those hot showers that we love to take when it's chilly outside, and those can be drying to the skin as well. So sometimes a variety of these factors conspire together and leave our skin dry. It can be very itchy. It can be very red. I can't tell you how many cases of of adult and and childhood eczema flares I've seen in the last month or two during the, the cooler weather, and it's all those things coming together. So if those problems pertain to a a given person. Dermatologists will often give suggestions on how to tweak a skincare routine to help the skin along. So sometimes you can do everything perfectly and still have dryness and rash, and that's where a dermatologist can prescribe medicines, either topical medicines or, or other therapies to help get a control on that. But the things that we can do at home can be quite helpful as well. So dermatologists often say this time of year, if you're having winter dryness, itching or rash, to start with, you know, maybe just turning down the dial on your shower or your bath a little bit so it's not scalding hot, maybe more toward lukewarm because that simple step alone can be helpful. Often a, a more brief bath or shower is nice, maybe seven minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, something like that. And using a very, very mild soap can be helpful. And then we love as dermatologists this phrase that we call soak and smear. And that's where right when you get out of the bath or shower, if you pat your skin dry when it's still warm and damp, And that is an opportunity to grease your whole body up or any area that you're prone to dryness or rash with a thick cream or moisturizer or even ointment. I used to be a beauty editor at Women's Magazine, so I've tried thousands of products from the ultra high-end, ridiculously expensive, all down to the inexpensive drugstore brands. And I like the ones in the drugstore because they're effective and they work. And is there a difference between the products that you would use on your face versus on your body? Not necessarily. I think in recent years, we've had this mindset of, oh, we need an 18-step skincare routine, you know, based on some Korean beauty influences and other things where um, some people may feel like they need something separate. But, you know, the reality is a lot of us use the same cream for our body as we do for our face. Our face is a little more exposed. It gets more sun. So that's an, even, in, even during the winter. 
So it's important to use something if you're going to be out and about that does have some SPF in it because UVA light is out all year round, including in, in January. So I think in that sense, you know, your body may be covered, but your face may require some moisturizer with SPF during the daytime just for protection. But other than that, I mean, the, the skin may or may not be so different and that can be very individualized. So people who are prone to acne, for example, might choose something and make sure it's non-comedogenic on their face, but it might not matter on their arms or legs. So there may be little tweaks, but um, some of us who just have dryness everywhere, we use the same, including me, use the same product on our body that we do for our face when it comes to moisturizer. All right, that makes sense. Another sign we should talk about is dull skin, when your complexion just doesn't have that glow. What does that say about your skincare routine and the kind of steps that you should take to correct that? Well, there are a number of possible causes of dull skin, and probably the most common, especially in the winter months, is just a buildup of the natural dead skin cells that our body will exfoliate on its own, but sometimes it needs our help. Sometimes if we get a buildup of those skin cells that are working their way to the surface and trying to flake away, that can make the skin appear dull. So we may need to take some steps to do exfoliation, and there are a number of ways to do that. And exfoliating is either using some kind of mechanical rubbing or some product or cream containing acid that a mild acid designed for skin that may help just get those little flakes away so that the skin appears fresher, brighter, less dull, and more rejuvenated. So some people just go old school. They might take a warm, wet washcloth and some gentle cleanser and just make little circles over their skin to wick away some of those little skin cells that may be heaping up on the, on the skin surface and contributing to dullness. I never recommend harsh rubbing or scrubbing. That's not necessary. It might actually kind of traumatize the skin or leave it red or irritated. Other people turn to more either washes, serums or creams, or even chemical peels that may do exfoliation using some mild acids. So sometimes those are retinoid medicines that you can find in the drugstore. Retinol is a common ingredient that would help with exfoliation. Others are the alpha hydroxy or beta hydroxy acids. They come in washes or peels or other, other formulas. For some people, those can be irritating, but a lot of people tolerate them well, use them once a week or periodically when they notice some dullness, and it can really help restore some radiance to the skin. Let's talk about breakouts, and I think a lot of people's first impulse might be to think about how they could cover up those blemishes, maybe with makeup or, or some other cover-up. What kind of tweaks could you make on the back end, though, in your everyday routine to get those under control? It's important to think about why acne might be happening. You know, are you going through a time of high stress that might have ticked that up for you? And sometimes addressing that underlying root cause, if you just know, hey, I'm really stressed out and that's why I'm having this breakout, or maybe my diet hasn't been what it usually is and I'm, I feel like that might be correlated because there have been some small studies suggesting a link to diet. Or are you having hormonal flares, for example, because hormones are a very common influence for females with acne. So it's good to understand the reason because if you can address that, that would kind of help minimize or fix the problem in a way that's very tailored to you. Obviously we want to prevent first, but when we can't always prevent, which is often the case, we can treat with some over-the-counter remedies. A lot of us reach toward products containing benzoyl peroxide. Those have been around for decades. You can find dozens of them in the drugstore. And they can be a little bit irritating. They leave some people red or um, kind of this can make the skin sort of dried out or inflamed. But if you tolerate benzoyl peroxide products, they can be very helpful for combating the bacteria that contributes to acne. Sometimes it helps to use other over-the-counter products, like there are some over-the-counter retinoids that are marketed for acne that can be helpful as well at treating small breakouts. And there are many washes that also contain salicylic acid. So there are a number of products, even without a prescription or even without seeing a dermatologist, that you might be able to play around with to see if it works as either a spot treatment or an all-over treatment if you're breaking out that much to reduce the number of acne lesions or help them go down faster when they do appear. All right. 
Last question. You're on a desert island where obviously healthy, great-looking skin is your top priority, and you can only take three products with you to take care of your skin. What are they? Well, my top one, two, and three products would be sunscreen, sunscreen, and sunscreen because, you know, that would be the <laughs> Probably on an of, island, that would also come in handy, yes. but even just anywhere. If I could have the two other products, the other one I would bring is a, a prescription cream called Tretinoin, which is one of the topical retinoids. And there are over-the-counter retinols and um, other retinoids that are available as well and prescription ones. And the third thing I would bring if we were on a desert island would be an antioxidant serum that I would apply either probably under my sunscreen. The ones that contain vitamin C, uh, along with ferulic acid, which is spelled with an F, F-E-R-U-L-I-C, those can be quite helpful for evening out skin tone, protecting against new damage coming in. And they're not considered sunscreens, but they help reduce the levels of these high energy molecules on the skin called free radicals that can cause cell damage to our skin and contribute to aging and and other problems. Those are wonderful tips. Dr. Garrity, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Now it's time for our tweak of the week. Put your phone away when you need to concentrate. It's distracting if it's somewhere you can see it, even if you manage not to pick it up and check it. Researchers at the University of Texas at Austin tested this. They gave attention tests to people who had their smartphones on their desks or tucked away in their pockets or bags. The result? The mere presence of the phone made it harder to pay attention, even if their phones were turned off. It really is true. Out of sight, out of mind. Thanks for listening to Health Now this week. Take a minute to rate and review the podcast. It helps other people find out about the show. And don't forget, WebMD has tons of great content on social media. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Bye for now. Bye for now.